don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What is up, crew? Welcome back to the Crypto Economy Podcast. I have got a quick read for today. Um, just a quick heads up, we will be having our crypto chat episode tomorrow, and I will just go ahead and drop that we had VJ Boyapati on the show. So that is at the or at real underscore VJ uh, on Twitter. Um, and we had a really, really fun discussion about Bitcoin maximalism and a ton of other stuff, um, particularly what was going on right now, his history with the censorship and stuff at Google. Um, it's just an episode not to miss, so uh, don't forget to check out tomorrow's episode. But today we are reading a crypto quick read from uh, another one from the Abacus Crypto Journal and from many-time return author on the show, um, Daniel Goldman. And actually, we did, uh, uh, that was the first crypto chat episode we did with, was with uh, bringing him on the show. So if you have not listened to that one, that one's another really good one to uh, check out, our interview with Daniel Goldman. And uh, uh, they've had a lot of good stuff that I've been reading. I've been trying to keep up with uh, the Abacus Crypto Journal that they've got going on over there. And... Um, uh, he had a really good one that is a focused response to the Noriel Rubini situation, who has become quite the obnoxious crypto hater. Um, and some of his complaints are based in reality, I guess, some of what he says. Um, but he, good Lord, everything he says just seems to come from a place of nothing but feeling and just kind of that angry tantrum it, it all i can think is that he's probably lost a lot of money and then he's also angry that he's called bitcoin uh you know a bubble and that it was going to crash multiple times in the past when it was nothing when it was like 50 dollars um so at this point he's pretty much become a troll and he doesn't seem to be focused in any regard whatsoever on actually having making reasonable statements. Um, he just he sounds like a troll at this point. Like I would be completely embarrassed to have a string of tweets that sound like his, um, even for something that I utterly detested. But I, I don't want to get into it too much, particularly because Daniel Goldman does a really good, a much more reasonable. Uh, a response to what he says. Uh, so let's go ahead and just jump into his article. Again, this is on the Abacus Crypto Journal, and it is titled, Mr. Fantastic, a focused response to Noriel Rubini's Senate testimony. It was bound to happen eventually. Economist and noted crypto FUD spreader Noriel Rubini, a.k.a. Dr. Doom, testified to the U.S. Senate committee yesterday trashing all things crypto and blockchain related. All in all, the presence of a ruthless critic like Rubini in front of the Senate is certainly a good thing. All too often, those who have more money and or political power than technical knowledge can be far too gullible in their willingness to devour the latest hype from the techno-utopian crowd. 
The blockchain bubble may be one of the more severe examples of this the world has ever seen. In short, the industry is in desperate need of being taken down a few pegs. And indeed, many of the Barb's Rubini casts are aimed at appropriate targets. Tether is an out-and-out -out disaster whose condemnation shouldn't rest on the shoulders of a small cadre of relentless tweeters and bots. Mining pool centralization is indeed a problem, and the common retorts to this are weak. Market manipulation is rampant and won't sort itself out unless concrete action is taken. Enterprise blockchain may actually be, quote, the most overhyped technology ever. Smart contract bugs are no joke. The ICO space is overridden with irresponsible claims, useless products, and outright scams, and so forth. It's a shame, then, given all the things he was saying that indeed needed saying, that the useful shade Rubini throws is sullied by a number of misrepresentations, exaggerations, and outright falsehoods that are peppered throughout his testimony, particularly as he veered into more technical matters. I don't intend for this to be an all-encompassing response to the testimony, which covers a wide variety of topics, and I'll try to avoid going into the broader issues regarding the potential value proposition of crypto in principle. As someone in the crypto space, I obviously disagree with his outright conclusive dismissal, but his general arguments are fairly common talking points in the discourse, and are already widely debated elsewhere. Instead, I'll focus on a small handful of specific points that stuck out as particularly sloppy. Scalability Throughout his testimony, Noriel avers that public blockchain scalability is simply impossible. He repeatedly refers to Vitalik Buterin's scalability trilemma, which states that when it comes to decentralization, scalability, and security, Blockchain protocols have difficulty simultaneously achieving more than two of three. At one point, he enumerates what he claims are the three noteworthy scaling approaches the industry is taking. One, creating more altcoins. Two, increasing block size. And three, utilizing sidechains and merge mining. He is correct in saying that each of the above three scaling avenues come at the cost to decentralization and or security, but the bizarre thing about that list, which anybody who even casually follows crypto will immediately notice, is that it omits the approaches that have absorbed the overwhelming majority of scaling research and development in the space. Take Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are, by virtually any metric, the two most popular cryptocurrencies. The Bitcoin community focuses most of its scaling energy on Layer 2 payment channels in the form of the Lightning Network. Ethereum has a number of popular Layer 2 state channel projects, most notably in the Plasma domain, and is also pursuing scaling on the base layer via sharding. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that if an engineer or technical researcher tells you that they're working on blockchain scaling solutions, you could safely bet with 95% certainty that what they are working on is related to either Layer 2 or sharding. Number of times Layer 2 solutions or sharding gets even mentioned in the entire testimony? Zero. Here he seems to come close to accidentally stumbling upon the idea of sharding himself. Quote, just as we cannot record all of the world's transactions in a single centralized database, nor should we do so in a single distributed database. Indeed, the problem of blockchain scaling is still more or less unsolved and is likely to remain so forever. 
end quote. Which, given that he pretty clearly hasn't even heard of it, I suppose would have been impressive. You'd think someone so insistent that scalability can never be achieved would want to rebut, or at least even acknowledge, the biggest current attempts at doing so. But alas. Proof of work versus proof of stake. About Bitcoin, Rubini says, quote, It is not scalable given its proof of work authentication mechanism that allows only for five to seven transactions a second, end quote. He contrasts this with the planned implementation of proof-of-stake via Casper on Ethereum, which he says promises to be, quote, vastly scalable, but will be, quote, massively centralized and thus not secure. Public blockchain protocols do indeed have a low transaction throughput, but this is a cap that's deliberately built into the protocol regardless of the proof-of-work or proof-of-stake distinction. In other words, the reasons for this cap, which I won't go into, and the optimal transactions per second choice are considerations that are essentially independent of the protocol's use of proof-of-work or proof-of-stake. In short, proof-of-stake is not a scaling solution. Indeed, in discussions around Casper's proof-of-stake component, the main purported benefits that are cited do not include scalability, but rather are 1. No inefficient energy consumption. 2. Better security guarantees via ability to implement explicit economic penalties. And 3. Less validator centralization. On point number 3, Nuriel claims that proof-of-stake will actually lead to more minor staker centralization than proof-of-work. He may be right. It isn't live yet, so only time will tell. But instead of countering the arguments that have been put forward by the Ethereum camp, like that proof-of-stake's reward system invites less economy of scale than proof-of-work, for which pooling hardware resources yields super-linear gains, for example, or even acknowledging that proof-of-stake is seen by many as an avenue explicitly to avoid centralization, he simply states his conclusion as self-evident. One caveat to the above, there is a subtle way in which proof-of-stake could have some scalability benefits. In proof-of-work, there is, in principle, no way to predict from which addresses valid blocks will arrive. With proof-of-stake, however, one has economic assurance that addresses with staked ether will continue to produce blocks for a given time period. Thus, one can better optimize consensus among producers, eliminating inefficiencies and yielding indirect scalability gains. These gains, however, are minor compared to the orders of magnitude scalability gains purported by the approaches discussed in the last section. Plus, given the general imprecision around this point, it's hard to give Rubini the benefit of the doubt here about this being what he had in mind. 51% attacks. Quote, In smaller coins with a small market capitalization, you don't even need a 51% hash power to mount a successful 51% attack. End quote. Huh? Sure, there are cases where exploits that are discussed as 51% attacks actually didn't require the full 51% hash rate. I've written about how this was possible for the Verge hacks, for example. But in that case, the low hash rate attack was made possible by the nature of the time warp exploit in conjunction with Verge's multiple mining algorithm protocol and had nothing to do with Verge's market cap. And sure, smaller market cap coins are easier to attack by virtue of the simple fact that they have a net lower hash rate, but you still require 51% of that hash rate to attack them. Genuinely not sure what he's talking about here. 
Okay, one more thing about mining. Quote, It is so energy-intensive and thus environmentally toxic to produce and carries such high transaction costs that even Bitcoin conferences do not accept it as a valid form of payment. End quote. What? High transaction fees led some conferences to stop accepting Bitcoin. Yes, but what does that have to do with the energy that goes into mining? The energy cost of block mining is borne by the miners, not by parties receiving payments. If his claim is that increasing energy costs of block production is what leads to higher transaction fees, I can't tell if this is what he's getting at. He has to reckon with the fact that historically the two have had no correlation. Cold storage. Quote, Or spend a fortune to put your crypto assets into cold storage, i.e. a digital storage that is disconnected from anything online, but leaving aside the cost of such Stone Age security solutions, the implication becomes that your crypto wealth, hidden in deep cold storage, cannot be easily traded or used for transactions of any sort. This is the contemporary equivalent of mining gold deep from the ground and then hiding it in the form of gold ingots back deep in the ground. End quote. The two most popular cold storage wallets are the Nano Ledger and the Trezor. They cost $100 and $80, respectively. As someone with decidedly non-whale wealth status, I still personally imagine a tad more money than that when I hear the word fortune. Also, having a separate device will always be less convenient, yes, but anyone who's used cold storage knows it's still fairly easy. You can keep your device within reach, it's the backup of the private key that needs to be better hidden, and can broadcast a transaction in, I'd say, 30 more seconds than it takes to send one via a standard desktop wallet. Plus, increasingly, major wallets and applications, i.e. MetaMask, offer direct cold wallet integration. Claiming, quote, your crypto wealth hidden in deep cold storage cannot be easily traded or used for transactions of any sort, end quote, is nonsense. Speed, efficiency. Quote, Institutions, particularly those engaged in algorithmic trading, need fast and efficient transaction processing. For their purposes, a single globally distributed blockchain such as Ethereum would never be useful and they will never use it, end quote. Once again, lack of scalability improvements is taken as a foregone conclusion. But even that aside, this argument in this form is pure strawmanning. Of course, processing transactions on a distributed blockchain is slower and more computationally intensive than doing so on a private server. The entire argument put forth by crypto proponents is that there are cases in which more cumbersome computational processes is a worthy trade-off for minimizing or eliminating the human, quote, wetware of trustful coordination between parties and can actually lead to greater overall efficiency. Settlement time in transferring large sums of wealth via Bitcoin versus via wire transfers being a concrete example. Maybe they're wrong, and ultimately such tools will never be adopted, but again, instead of actually engaging with the arguments, Noriel simply throws out, quote, fast and efficient transaction processing, as though that qualifies as a counter. A gaggle of exaggerations. Quote, Centralized exchanges are being hacked daily. Moreover, hundreds of other cryptocurrencies are invented every day, end quote. Days off go by without an exchange hack and with less than 100 new cryptocurrencies emerging. Quote, 
Hundreds of stories of greedy crypto criminals raising billions of dollars with scammy white papers. End quote. As far as I can tell, the only crypto projects whose fund raising has exceeded $1 billion are EOS and Telegram. Let me know in the comments if I've missed 98 others, pleading the fifth on those two being, quote, greedy crypto criminals. Quote, the early internet in the early 1990s saw a rapid boom of applications and explosion of user adoption. Email became widespread and thousands of useful websites used by millions of people for useful purpose sprang overnight, end quote. The first email was sent in 1971. Widespread email adoption was not achieved by the following morning. If what he means is, quote, email wasn't widespread until email was widespread, well then yes, that's true. Re-Ethereum. Quote, And there is nothing immutable in the code is law motto, as the developers are police, prosecutors, and judges. When something goes wrong in one of their buggy, quote, smart pseudo-contracts, and massive hacking occurs, they simply change the code and fork a failing coin into another one by arbitrary fiat revealing the entire trustless enterprise to have been untrustworthy from the start, end quote. Go ahead and criticize Ethereum for the DAO fork. I've done so myself. But to clarify, this has happened literally once. To someone unfamiliar, which is a most people this testimony was intended for, Nouriel gives the impression that Ethereum's is a history of willy-nilly forking to revert valid transactions. This degree of misrepresentation is indefensible. Furthermore, regarding scammy dApps on Ethereum, he criticizes the community for, quote, doing nothing, literally nothing, to stop or block such Ponzi games, end quote. Ethereum is apparently guilty of being both too active and not active enough in its governance. Maybe Vitalik did solve quantum computing after all. Conclusion I could go on, but hopefully the point is made. I have no strong reason to think that Dr. Doom isn't a fine economist, a kind friend, and a good neighbor. But his knowledge of the crypto space and his willingness to do responsible due diligence and construct intellectually honest arguments is clearly lacking. This industry needs, scratch, has better skeptics. David Gerard, Preston Byrne, and Angela Walsh come to mind. There is no shortage of folks out there worth listening to. Giving the spotlight to the figures who are best at inciting ire, hurling insults, and drawing attention to themselves won't improve the discourse in this space. Discourse which unfortunately continues to have some serious room for improvement. Alright, and that will conclude our article on the crypto or the Abacus Crypto Journal by Daniel Goldman. Uh, and you can find him on Twitter at, what's his tag? I forgot it already. Uh, Daniel not giving away state secrets, Goldman. Uh, DZAC23. That's D-Z-A-C-K-23. That's his tag on Twitter. Um, so be sure to check him out. He's always got some really good stuff uh, and writings uh, that they do over at the uh, Abacus Crypto Journal. It's a really, really good, uh, well, you know, medium journal. I read a lot of stuff up here. Um, so I definitely encourage you guys to check it out and follow what they are doing over there. There's a lot of good stuff. Um, in fact, there's another article, uh, he links to 
particularly at the beginning when he's talking about all the places where he does agree with Rubini or that, you know, there are um, definitely uh, points to be made with some of his claims. Uh, he actually links, he has a whole paragraph that's just link after link after link, um, uh, basically backing up some of Rubini's more basic claims with the um, space. And a number, of them, a number of them are actually Abacus Crypto Journal articles that are written on these certain topics. Um, and uh, so there's definitely a lot of other stuff to dive in there, dive into there if you want to go digging. Uh, so Daniel Goldman does a really good job of responding to a lot of the major points that, uh, I mean, as he says, are clearly um, not based on anything at all or just based on a, a deep misconception or sheer ignorance. Um, now, with all due respect to Rubini, there is a lot of crap in the blockchain space. There are people selling nonsense left and right. Um, there are so many ICOs that are idiotic, but honestly, it does not look that much different to me than websites getting sold for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars that have no product at the beginning of the internet. Um, it, when you completely open uh, anyone to being able to create their own financial instrument, essentially, there is going to be nonsense because, I mean, it's like being, anybody being able to um, uh, make their own website or anybody being able to make their own YouTube video. There's going to be tons and tons of crap. Um, that is inevitable, particularly with how new this is and with the fact that people remain so ignorant about what the technology is good for. But his blanket dismissal sounds... I mean, some of his major claims that uh, Goldman did not go into are just the... You can find pretty much all of them on uh, Nick Carter's uh, FUD Dice. If you've not read his article or listened to the episode where we dug into it, um, you're definitely missing out. Uh, Nick Carter basically trashes all of the main uh, FUD. That if, if you're reading any mainstream article about um, Bitcoin and how terrible it is, it's going to be on this dice. Um, it's all the most ridiculous, repeated, never, never dug into. Like, I swear I... I've, I've always had a very low opinion of journalism, but when someone does not, it's so clear that someone is, has an opinion and then simply seeks to have one or two data points to back up what they say. It's not research. That's not how you do science. That's not how you attempt to discover something. That's not research. Research is when, yes, you can have a hypothesis where you can start with an opinion, but you need to go into it looking for explanations of how the thing works, of looking at core data to figure out if any of it lines up with your argument, not whether or not you can find a data point in isolation that backs up your argument. The internet and email are a great example for this, is that if you went looking for reasons to make the internet look bad, Think of how easy that task would be. But if you started from a baseline of does the internet do good or bad, 
you'd have a completely different view of what was going on because in the first case, you were seeking all of the tiny little niche things that look as dirty and terrible as possible. And in the latter, you were simply starting a baseline of what is this thing, what's its use, what is it used for, so on and so forth. Um, one thing that I read recently, and I wish I knew where it was. Um, I'm, oh God, that would, I need, really need to find that again. There was a really good point um, that somebody said that actually almost when people were talking about um, speculation in the crypto markets is that speculation is actually far, far more of what's going on in the financial markets. That They said uh, gold, ETFs, um, uh, commodities exchanging, like all of that stuff, and uh, Forex trading. Um, almost all of it, something like 90 to 95% of it is actually speculation. That that's actually, speculation is actually the mechanism uh, used for hedging, for making sure that you have, um, you're protected against price movements, and it's how prices are found. So the financial markets, when people say that crypto is um, almost all speculation, and that this is somehow a, um, a weird thing, that's, not only is it entirely untrue, but in comparison to what we have today, it's a tiny fraction of the market is actually speculation. Um, the vast majority of uh, what sets a price floor in the digital asset space is holding. It's protecting capital from uh, basically uh, dependent uh, financial institutions or um, from uh, risky third parties. Um, that's the main use case, and the this article... God, I wish I could remember what it was. I'm going to go digging to see if I can find it. Um, but this article uh, suggested that it was only uh, uh, likely with um, comparing volumes and stuff on exchanges versus what is held by uh, long-term uh, users. Uh, the It's only like a 4 to 5% uh, speculation in the market versus something like 90 to 95 in the normal uh, financial market. So the difference is orders of magnitude less speculation going on in the digital asset space, um, which is kind of eye-opening when you think about it because, because it puts into perspective that that's really what price discovery is, speculation. And it suggests whether or not our financial markets are what we would see in a natural economy or not, um, because we don't have one, we just don't have any natural prices, particularly when it comes to money and um, uh, asset prices. There's so much fake money chasing it that we don't really have a natural market. So we don't really know how this would play out in, um, in a real open economy. But it would suggest that speculation is actually the bulk of what's going on to balance the price. And that it may very well naturally outpace the actual trade going on in the underlying asset. Um, but in the case of crypto, that's not true, it appears. That there is a lot more wealth being stored just as a means of having wealth independent of any other institution or trusted third party that could take it or control it or tell you what you can and cannot do with it. That's the utility of Bitcoin, and shockingly, that is actually what Bitcoin is being mostly used for.
So that was just a really interesting point that I read recently um, that I think kind of falls in line with this whole discussion. Um, but the fact that Noriel talks about scalability and talks about things that that he would have, like if he's talking about side chains and merged mining, he would absolutely, there is no way he does not know about Lightning Network and possibly Plasma. And so his discussion that these are the only three scaling options when he's ignoring the elephant in the room, I mean, that's just flat misrepresentation. Um, he's, he's lying for the sake of uh, making his argument stronger by eliminating the one thing that make his, makes his argument stupid. So he's betting on the fact that people not knowing what he's talking about will believe him. Uh, and he's, it's like saying that, it's like pointing out that there's porn and drugs on the internet and just leaving out the fact that, okay, well, yes, there's YouTube, Google, and social media. Uh, it's such a misrepresentation that it's just absurd. And this is not the only issue that he has this kind of, these nonsensical claims about. And Daniel Goldman does a really good job of, like I said, being far more reasonable and I guess you could say respectful to his opinion than I would, even though he does seem to get a little bit like just WTF about it in his article. Um, I mean, anyone who thinks proof of work and proof of stake are scaling solutions or have anything to do with scaling either does not know what they are for or is, again, just trying to make something that sounds like an argument that's based on com either complete ignorance or just an outright lie. Um, and uh, I lean towards the fact that because of some of the things that he talks about that he does know some details of, I think he's just being completely disingenuous and doesn't care that he's making stuff up. Um, and then the whole 51% attacks, maybe maybe he's just ignorant of that. Maybe maybe he just doesn't know what, a, what the hell a 51% attack actually is. I can see that being a little bit too deep in the woods. Um, but uh, as he says, and Daniel Goldman does a great job of explaining the Verge hacks in those two articles, both of which we've read on the show um, that he mentioned, um, about how they... Uh, committed a 51% hash rate or a 51% attack on the network without 51% of the uh, hash rate, but it was specific to a uh, vulnerability in Verge that caused this problem, and it was only because of the multiple, mi multiple mining algorithms. And the fact that the assumption that Nouriel Rubini has any idea about that, I think, is ridiculous. There's no way he he knows that level of that degree of uh, uh, nuance about the technology um, or about the technical matters that go into some of these attacks or vulnerabilities uh, because, I mean, he says things that prove that he's just either ignorant or, again, making stuff up. Um, uh, he obviously doesn't know anything about mining, what the actual purpose of it is, um, and the fact that the reason proof of work is Proof of work is used specifically because it's such an uh, unbiased, independent, just just completely just trust the math. You don't have to know anybody or anything 
all you have to do is trust the math. Like that's the idea is it is the ultimate disintermediating force because there is nothing uh, nothing subjective needing to be trusted in that situation as long as we are all defaulting back to the consensus of the Bitcoin protocol that reaches all the way back to the entire history of Bitcoin and that everyone else is uh, finding as the shelling point, the shelling point monetary policy, if you will. Proof of work is great specifically because it is so objective that there is no subjectivity. And I think proof of stake specifically adds a huge level of subjectivity to it because anybody who has any degree of power or staking power over the network, they get to keep it as long as they want. It's a, it's an indefinite control over the protocol. Whereas proof of work, if you have 40% of the hash rate, you better be working your ass off for in a year. You don't have 40% of the hash rate anymore. It's a constant and ever-changing market open that requires tons of competition or has tons of competition and you have to stay ahead of it. Just like being the largest producer of smartphones, you might be the largest producer one year, but in three years, there if you make a couple of stupid decisions, you could be the worst seller of smartphones. There is nothing keeping you there other than your ability to efficiently do the job that the market is asking for. And that's the same with proof of work. Nobody cares whether you're an important person or an unimportant person. If you can't produce the hashes, you don't get to participate. End of story. Then the cold storage argument, Daniel does a great job of shutting down. Um, I freaking love my Trezor. I use, I have a Ledger Nano, a Trezor, and a Keep Key. And there's a reason I have an affiliate link with my Trezor. And maybe I'll get one for the other two things. Right now, I'm just sticking with the Trezor just because I've got so many other things to deal with, and I don't want to have a thousand affiliate links at the moment uh, to deal with. Um, but uh, there's nothing hard about the Trezor. After you get over that first hump of just figuring out what a hardware wallet is and how to use it, it is, does not cost, it does not cost even close to a fortune. Um, otherwise, I would never be able to have one. And it's not hard. Um, in fact, I've migrated everything over to hardware wallets because it is so easy. Um, and maybe it does take 30 seconds more than a standard desktop wallet, but I don't notice it and I feel a whole lot safer having it in a hardware wallet. And that 30 seconds makes absolutely no difference to me and I can have tons of wallets on them. Uh, they, I think the Trezor still, I haven't used it yet, but they have a password manager, so you can use it as like a password master key. Um, I mean, there's so many, they're awesome little devices and they are anything but insanely difficult to use or uh, there's no legitimate comparison to putting money in the, or gold ingots back into the ground with having a hardware wallet. It's incredibly easy to use, and when I want to use it, I've I've done what I need to do within one or two blocks of deciding that I'm going to do it. I get it out, I punch in all my uh, I punch in my PIN number or whatever, boot up my wallet, send a transaction. It confirms on wherever I'm sending it to, and the job is done. Sometimes I miss the first block, but it's usually because I paid a fee, not because it took too long. It's easy. It's really easy. In fact, I don't think. For most of the things that I do, nothing else moves money that fast except for swiping a credit card or a debit card. But those situations are not settled payments. There's always chargebacks. There's um, the 
it's not actually going through on the bank side. When I at least do it in Bitcoin, everything is completely done and I know it. I can check the blockchain. Uh, so his view of hardware wallets is got to be based on the fact that he's never had or used one. Um, speed and efficiency, Daniel Goldman does, does a good job of hitting those. And then another slew of exaggerations. Um, like, I want to give Rubini credit because, like Daniel Goldman says, he does bring attention to problems that exist, but he does so in such an obnoxious and misinformed way that I cannot... He clearly doesn't care about the truth. He just doesn't. And he has become such an embarrassing troll that giving him any more of a, more attention. This will be the last time I talk about him um, unless, actually, I think I talk about him with uh, VJ. Um, but I'm not going to give him any more attention because he's just such a buffoon now. He's such a caricature of any decent skeptic that it becomes pointless to, to, to break down. The dumber the argument is, the more wasteful it is to spend time trying to uh, counter it. Um, so... Yes, there's tons of scams in the ICO market. Anybody with half a brain can see that. Um, this is not a confusing thing in the crypto space. It's a huge bubble, and we still have not sorted out what is valuable and what is not. And we still don't even know with, these, with this technology what utilizing it looks like. Because, as I mentioned with that article, only 5% of what's going on in Bitcoin appears to be speculation. And... The underlying utility of money is a hedge against uncertainty. This is something we've talked about with the economics, which an economist should know, but arguably tons of economists have really crappy views on monetary policy. So uh, mainstream economics has got lots and lots of problems and could not in any way see value in Bitcoin. So from that perspective, I don't really know much about his economic background and what exactly he studies, like what... Uh, theories or schools of thought that he uh, dominates with. I just hear his nonsense uh, spouted about crypto, um, which I have unfollowed him, and I don't intend to go into this anymore. I think Daniel Goldman did a good job of just hitting his Senate testimony, and this is probably as far as we need to go. Um, so maybe I was a little bit opinionated in this one. He's just said so many idiotic things that it's just become a huge waste of time at this point. So, uh yeah, a huge thank you to Daniel Goldman for this uh, wonderful uh, little article on, again, the Abacus Crypto Journal, breaking apart some of the more technical matters that Noriel Rubini uh, lays out in exaggerations, misrepresentations, and outright falsehoods. So uh, do not forget to follow Daniel Goldman at dzack 23 on Twitter and check out the Abacus Crypto Journal and follow him on Medium so that you don't miss a lot of the other great stuff that they are putting out uh, up there. A great one to follow to get uh, a lot of insight into the crypto and Bitcoin space. All right, guys. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We will close this one here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at The Crypto Economy, on Instagram at Crypto Economy Guy, Medium at The Crypto Economy, and Mastodon at The Crypto Economy. If you would like to support the show, um, anything you can do is a huge help. Retweet, share, post on other social media, 
and of course, donate to the podcast if you uh, uh, can spare some Bitcoin to help keep the uh, server running and the website up and the Podbean hosting of all of this audio content to make it downloadable. Uh, all that great stuff. There's a lot of cost going on behind the scenes. So if you can contribute anything, I will have my Bitcoin donation address available. And thank you so much um, to anyone who has donated in the past. And of course, my Trezor uh, affiliate link um, will always be available as well. If you have not gotten your Trezor hardware wallet, like I said in this episode, it's really easy to use. And um, I have I swear by it. I use... Uh, the Trezor as my main one, and I enjoy all the hardware wallets. Trezor, in my opinion, is just the best. So use my affiliate link to get it. It's only 80 bucks. It doesn't cost you any more, but it does send a couple of bucks my way to help out the Crypto Economy podcast. All right, guys. Uh, I will catch you all tomorrow with Crypto Chat with Vijay Boyapati. Don't miss it. Take it easy, everybody.